Uh, this morning, is, uh, we're going to begin with some things, some really simple things. Uh, what we have here is uh, just some big things I want to draw your attention to. There's a big cup of coffee uh, there, um, kind of an interesting, interesting photo. Uh, there are uh, there's a there's a Newfoundland. I, I understand that the pastor before me many years ago. By the way, I've been here ten years. I'm in my eleventh year. Well, I, it's crazy how long I've been here. All of a sudden, I mean, just just crazy. But anyway, the pastor before me had a Newfoundland, and my brother has a Newfoundland. And they, it's not only are they big dogs, but they slobber big. I mean, they slobber big. So just just letting you know. Uh, then we're looking at a gorilla. That's another big thing. Uh, also, we have an elephant. We're starting to get into like really big things here, right? And then the biggest thing of all on planet Earth, a, a living thing anyway, is a blue whale, right? Uh, big things, big living things. Now, it's very interesting because the ancients were very fascinated by big things. Uh, if you go to Egypt and you look at the big pyramids, right, and you look at the, uh, the sphinx, you know, the sizes of it, they're kind of fascinated with big things. And they actually believed in one thing that was bigger than anything else. And they believed that it was, at least many of them, believed that it was a living thing. Because you notice these are all big living things. Now, I know the cup of coffee is not alive, but the guy behind it, he's living. So I just threw that in there just for fun. Uh, big living things. The ancients actually believed that the universe was a living thing. Uh, they believed in an impersonal, quasi-personal, depending on who you talked to back then. Uh, they believed in an impersonal force that was kind of alive uh, in the cosmos and so forth. Uh, today, as postmoderns, and I know that's a tricky word for us today, but we've actually, most, most people believe, or at least most uh, people who study these things, believe that we've moved from mo an era called modernism to an era called postmodernism. And most postmoderns actually em embrace this idea that, they, that in the universe is like this living force of some sorts. And, uh, you know, it's interesting the way things come around. But I wanted to show you a video today, just for fun, I wanted to show you a video uh, on, uh, on the universe. Uh, this, I was thinking of the young people, the young people uh, in our congregation today, and I just thought it might be kind of, kind of fun to take a look at this and just, just to think about the size of the universe. So uh, here we go. So... How big is the universe? Okay, so you might be wondering, why in the world is a pastor showing this? And, and, and there's a couple of reasons why I'm showing this. It's, uh, it's one of these things where people in the world today are so overwhelmed with the sheer size of the universe that they come to the all kinds of conclusions. And one of the things that people uh, think very commonly, very common idea here is that uh, people think, well, the universe is so vast, and all we see are material things because we are now in the science. There are many people who think that, well, all there is material. Uh, there are other people who see that the universe is so big that somehow there had to be an there has to be an impersonal force within the universe, and so the universe by its nature is not material so much as it is divine. That it is that it's filled with with some sort of impersonal divine attributes and when you begin to study this and think through this at least on a philosophical basis you begin to you what you begin to discover is that there's very little difference between these two beliefs essentially scientists that say that the universe is just material, a sense is saying 
and I, I know this might be difficult to understand, but in the sense they're saying that the universe is divine. So there's really not a lot of difference between these two ideas. That, that the ultimate reality, if the ultimate reality is material, then that means that the ultimate reality as material, it has some sort of divine quality and this kind of thing. Now, as Christians, we proclaim a remarkable thing, absolutely remarkable thing. We proclaim that our God made the universe. Now, you just think about how big the universe is. We proclaim that our God made the universe. And that's a very different belief than that there is a that the that the universe is is somehow filled with uh, that the divine is mingled in the universe. We believe that God made the universe, and we believe that our God is bigger than the universe. Because by this very nature, if you make the universe, you have to be bigger. But of course, conceptually, we can't get our heads around that, right? Because we can't get our heads around the size of the universe. We certainly can't get our heads around God who made the universe. Um, uh, look at what the Bible says about, uh, about God creating the universe. Right in the very first verse, right in the beginning, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is you know, a, a, a statement that we so often take for granted. But I'm going to tell you right now that in the time that this was written, uh, this was a radical statement. What this communicates is that God transcends all material things. Uh, the word for this is transcendence. Um, God made the universe, therefore God transcends the universe. God is not the universe. God is not the material world, but God transcends it and created it. Um, just try to get your head around the size of the universe. You haven't even begun to get your head around the size of God. Because for the, the universe is nothing for God, it's nothing, because God, because well, you can't put, you can't even talk about God in terms of size, because uh, God is spirit and this kind of thing. Okay, so so I just kind of wanted to begin with that, and then this allows us to segue a little bit today into my main topic, which is a big topic, a huge topic, another big living topic, and that's the spirit of God, uh, the spirit. Of God. Now, of course, I underlined of God uh, because a lot of times we throw the word spirit around uh, in our language. Uh, we use the word spirit when we uh, want to make reference to all kinds of things. For, just for example, uh, not that you're rushing down to do this uh, stuff, but you know, there's, when, when you go to a restaurant sometimes, you'll see that, that uh, alcohol is referred to as you see this wine and spirits. Uh, we use the word spirit when we speak of attitudes or mood. He has a rotten spirit. He has a bad attitude, so he has a bad spirit. Uh, we, we also, when we want to know the meaning of something, the real meaning of something, what's that really about? Sometimes we say, well, you know, he keeps the spirit of the law, the spirit of the rule, uh, rather than the letter. Sometimes we use spirit that way. And even the ancients, such as Cicero, who was this great Roman uh, pagan uh, writer who I've referred to Cicero a couple weeks ago, even Cicero talked about the fact that the spirit of a person is uh, distinct from, a, from the body of a person. This is what Cicero, Cicero said, be sure that it is not you that is mortal, mortal, but only your body. Only your body is mortal. For that man whom you, your outward form reveals is not yourself. The spirit is the true self. Imagine that, this pagan believing that the spirit is the true self, uh, not the physical figure which, he pointed out by, which is pointed out by your finger. 
So, so this morning we're talking about the Spirit of God, though, in contrast to just the word spirit that's so often thrown out there. Now, uh, Amelia read through the first nine verses of Romans chapter 8, and you'll notice, and I pointed this out before, but you'll notice that this word spirit is used all over the place in Romans, uh, Romans 8. 22 times in, the, in chapter 8, 35 times the word spirit is used in the book of Romans, 22 of those times are in Romans 8. That should tell us a lot about what Romans 8 is about. Okay, so the question this morning is, I have to start with this. Uh, what, does, what does the Bible tell us about the Spirit of God? And what does it say? And, and so first I wanted to look at the Old Testament. Uh, and by the way, this subject is so big and so vast, and we're dealing with, with, a, with a God who is alive that we can't even begin to get our, uh, get our heads around. And it's not even possible... To, um, to, to, to do a good job with it in, in just a few minutes preaching. There's Romans 8, uh, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who, uh, who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We'll return to that at the, near the end of the sermon. Um, let's, take, let's take a look at um, the Spirit of God. Okay? Um, Right here, a couple things that we uh, notice that we uh, that I want to tell you from the Old Testament, the Spirit of God, and we read this from the very first very first verse. Really, the Spirit of God is the powerful presence of God in creation. God created uh, through the Holy Spirit. Um, there it is, right there. And second verse, second verse tells us a lot about this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So there are two things that we discover right here in the first two verses. One is, is that the Spirit of God created. God was creating, and of course we, we believe that this is a, through the Spirit. The Spirit of God cr- uh, created the world. But also, the Spirit of God gave peace in the midst of chaos. So the Spirit of God is a creator, along with the, the Father and the Son. They're all creators. Um, but also... The, the Spirit of God gives peace. And that should be really comforting to you. I want to share with you uh, what, this, what the Spirit of God, how we read that in the Hebrew. It's Ruach Elohim. Elohim, uh, the, the word on the left. In Hebrew, you read from right to left, not left to right. Uh, and so that first word there, which is the word on the right, is Ruach, which means wind. And Elohim is a word for God. El is the word for God. Okay, that the Hebrews essentially adopted from the Canaanite language. Uh, the word El uh, is God. Which also, by the way, um, the uh, Muslims get the word Allah from, it originates from the word El. So these related languages. So Ruach Elohim, wind of God. The wind of God was, uh, was hovering uh, in the midst of chaos, bringing peace out of chaos. So we have God as a creator, we have God as, God as the one who brings peace. Um, now, there's many people who, or many cultic groups, that interpret this idea of the Ruach of God as essentially just the extended force of God. Okay, that this is not a separate person. But in this message, I want to show you what the church uh, does with this. This is very important to keep in mind that the Spirit of God is a person. But the Bible in the Old Testament, the Old Testament doesn't clearly show us that 
Uh, certainly not in the beginning, but I'm going to be working through this. So let's take a look at what else the Spirit of God does, the Ruach of uh, Elohim, uh, the Spirit of God does uh, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament. It's right there when we move into Genesis 2, we find that, uh, that the writer of Genesis uses the word nafach uh, for the word breathe. Let's take a look at this. Genesis 2.5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field was yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. That's an important point, by the way, because the word for man is Adam. We get the name Adam from, and it has to do with the earth. Adam, the earth. Dust from the ground. And breathe. There's the word nafach, which, is re- which I'm going to show you is related to ruach. Breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So, so you see, see that God not only creates through the Spirit, he not only brings peace through the Spirit, but he gives life through the Spirit. I think about that for a minute. We talk about being born again in the church. What's that about? It has to do with the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God comes and breathes into his life. It tells us a lot about the mistake that we make as Christians sometimes when we think that to be a Christian is just a set of beliefs. It is not just a set of beliefs. It is, uh, it is way more dynamic than that. It is actually God himself coming into our lives and giving us, making us into new and different creatures. Okay, so, so the word nafak, I'm going to show you that that word nafak is related to this whole ruach thing. Isaiah 42, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath, nafak, this idea, nafak to the people on it and the spirit, ruach, to those who walk in it. So, so I just want to make it clear to you that you know, what I'm presenting here is, is this, relation, I, this relationship between these two words that the Spirit of God breathes into people. <sighs> the wind of God. You know, you must be really important. You think about that, how important you must be? You know, God makes the, wor- makes the world, you know, creates the world, and his, the wind of God is hovering over the chaos of the world, and so forth. And, and you know what he's thinking. He's thinking, you know, this, uh, this world is pretty, pretty good stuff, but I want to blow into someone who looks like me and carries my image upon this earth. And so he makes it very personal. He says, I'm going to breathe into Adam, breathe into Adam, and breathe into Eve, and give us life. It's amazing. I don't know if any of you ever watched someone lose his or her life. But when life disappears from a person, there's this breath that dies. It's not there anymore. That's so that we would understand that God gives life, you see. Um, So the Spirit of God creates, gives peace, and gives one life. But there's so much more that we can say. Of course, uh, I want to take you to Numbers chapter 11. 
because the Spirit of God develops throughout the Old Testament and what the Spirit of God is about. And, and we have this story that Moses was having a horrible day. He led the children of Israel out from Egypt, and you know, he had some bad days out there in the wilderness. And when you get to Numbers 11, you know, the people are complaining. They want meat to eat. They're really upset. Moses gets tired of it. Look, what, look, look, look at this passage here. There's actually there's going to be a few sli- three slides here. But Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans. See, they're just complaining. Everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed holy. And Moses was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? See, now Moses is complaining. And why have, I found, why have I not found favor in your sight, that you would lay the burden of all this people on me? By the way, I never have this conversation with God about you, right? You know, you're all so loving and kind, you know? But Moses was having a bad day. Did I conceive this, all this people? Did I give them birth? You know, that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom, and as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat? They're, they're complaining. They want meat. Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. Now I'm not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. Boy, he is having a bad, bad day. If I, if I will find favor in your sight, that I may not, uh, then I might see, 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 uh, see my wretchedness. He goes on. And look at this. And then, and then this. Then, uh, the rest of the story here. Then the Lord said to Moses, boy, you have a bad attitude. I think I'm going to get rid of you. He doesn't do that, does he? He gives, God, gives Moses grace, which is one of the remarkable things to me in this story is that God puts up with this, right? The Lord says to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. So God is giving Moses these people, right? It's like God gave me all these leaders in this church. You know, Cindy and Mike and Chrissy and so many more. Obviously, Carrie with the youth. But there's so many others. Anyway, going on about that. Verse 17. And I will come down and walk with you there, or talk with you there. And I will take, this is, this is the point of the story that for, this, for this message. I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. You think the spirit of God is big enough to go around? Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't contain the Spirit, right? I'm going to take some of the Spirit that's on you, and I'm going to put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Let's be honest. All of us need help. Oh, boy. I need help. I suspect you need help. We all need help. And the Spirit of God is what in this story? Is a helper, a great helper. You know, and that speaks a lot. I could, that's a great sermon here, right? I mean, about the w- way that God moves people in the church to help one another. You know, when Chrissy is up here doing music for us, guess what she needs? She needs help. She needs you to embrace her heart, right? When I preach, I, I'm sure I make errors along the way, but there are times when it's like, okay, I need you to give me grace. I need you to be along with me in this ministry as we lead people to Jesus, right? I need help. We all need help, right? Everybody needs help. I can't, it just blows my mind how much work Carrie McCaddy does uh, 
and the help that she needs. And boy, I'll tell you what, um, Brad is huge help. It's along with others. A lot of people helping down there in that youth program. Anyway, the Spirit of God does these things. So God is absolutely gracious to us. Uh, here we go. Just, just to kind of point this out to you one more time, the Spirit of God is a creator, a peacemaker, a life giver, and a helper. And these are just some of the things that we see in the Old Testament regarding the Spirit. All right. But this, here's another thing that the Spirit of God does. And like I said, I'm just giving you a smattering of some things that the Spirit of God does in the Old Testament. This is not, this is not you know, uh, everything that the Spirit of God does by any, uh, by any means. So the Spirit of God is a huge topic, very big, kind of like the universe. The Spirit of God anoints the Messiah. That's the fifth thing that he does. Anoints the Messiah. This is very important in what we call salvation history. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what, he's, uh, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek for the, of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall, uh, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the, his, uh, be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Because the Spirit of God has empowered him. Now, I wanted to just kind of wanted to uh, show you this uh, here. I actually just copied again some of my notes right into the PowerPoint because I think it's so important for you to understand this. One of my jobs as a preacher is to teach, as well as to proclaim and challenge. Um, the Spirit of God is God's agent in what we call salvation history. God has always been working for salvation for humanity since the day that we uh, sinned in the garden. The Spirit of God comes to specific people. And this is really worth writing down and holding in your notes somewhere. I don't know if you want to put it on your refrigerator or whatever. But this is, uh, this is important stuff to understand about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God comes to specific people, this is in the Old Testament, in specific places, at specific times, in order to accomplish God's plan for the created order. Okay? In Isaiah 11, we see that he is he is going to come to help the Messiah, Jesus Christ, accomplish his work. And what's going to, what is his work? What's the Messiah's work? It's to bring us to God, right? We know that Jesus is going to be crucified, being the Messiah, and his blood is going to be, his blood's going to be shed for us, and we're going to be able to uh, enter into this uh, relationship with God. But, we're, but the question becomes, are we seeing in the Old Testament here a close union between three persons. Are we beginning to see three persons being developed? So based upon Isaiah 11.2, we see three persons just in that verse. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. This kind of thing. Right? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Anyway, so look at this. The word Lord comes from the Hebrew Yahweh. And Yahweh is a personal name for God. All right? So there's, there's certainly one person probably more in reference to the Father than anything else, but it's the Lord. It's the Lord. So you have this person. Then you have the Messiah. You know, there shall come forth a, uh, a shoot from this stump of Jesse and a branch, of his, and a branch of, from his roots. 
uh, shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Who's the him? The him is the Messiah. And then you have, again, the Spirit of God, which is the Ruach of God. The Ruach of God, the wind of God, the breath of God. So it's just, in this, just from the second verse in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, you begin to see that there's just this development, development of, of the Spirit as a person. Although, that's, and that is controversial, I will tell you. Um, but uh, we see a little bit more in Isaiah 48, verse 16. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the, from the time it came to be, I have, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me, that is, the Messiah, and his Spirit. So he's got these clues, you see. Now the reason why this is so important is because within uh, the Judeo tradition, right, the, the faith we get from Judaism, monotheism is crucial, right? And so the Jews are going to struggle with this idea of the Spirit of God being a person. And yet we have these little clues that, yeah, maybe the Spirit of God is an actual person, you see. Um, let's take a look at the... Um, let's take a look at the New Testament. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip that there. Uh, those are questions that the people are starting to ask about Jesus himself. Is Jesus divine? Is Jesus human? Questions that we've dealt with at different times, different places. Uh, let's take a look at John 1.1. Because see, what happens is, is that you come to the New Testament and you have this idea, you have these, these three ideas. First of all, you have God, the Lord. Yahweh is the name of the Lord, or the God, I should say. And then you have the Messiah, and then you have the Spirit. But you have this, you don't have enough revelation. Well, the first thing that early Christians need to understand was that Jesus himself is God. This is really crucial, and I don't have space here this morning to talk about the, the Greek language here. But the Greek language makes it absolutely clear that Jesus is God, that Jesus is divine. And so we have this uh, first verse, John opens right up with it, telling us who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word is Jesus, by the way. In the context, no question. It's not even an issue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not the Word was a God or anything like that. It's the Word was God. And the Greek's absolutely clear. Whatever God is, that's who Jesus is. That's what he's saying. So the church is dealing with these questions. Who is God? What's he like? Who is Jesus? What's Jesus like? And so forth. And then, in addition to that, the church has got to start figuring out, well, wait a minute. What about this spirit? I mean, what about the spirit? If we know Jesus is God, how about the spirit? And so in John 16, uh, 13, we get this. It's, I'll start with verse 12. Notice what Jesus says to the disciples in his private ministry here. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, who's the spirit of truth? We call him the Holy Spirit. When the spirit of truth comes, and believe me, this is revelatory. This is kind of sh like earth-shaking. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. What do you mean, Jesus? You mean, you mean it, this impersonal force? No, no, no. He as a person. He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. Notice the freedom here? 
and the desire to do the will of the Father, he, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. See, we've got multiple persons here. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why is this so important? Let me tell you something. It's absolutely crucial. Because remember, we spent a little time on, like last week, we talked about the couple of creeds. And I'm trying to give you some foundational things here. When we get into Romans 8, we need to understand who the Spirit of God is. Well, here we go. The Spirit of God is a person. It's pretty exciting stuff, actually. Because it means that God's relational. And God wants to have a relationship with you. If God is three in one, he wants to have a relationship with you because that's who God is. Now, there's more to this story because a lot of times people say, well, you know, uh, this is the church. You kind of developed this, and we really can't trust it because they really didn't know what they were talking about. And by the time we get to Constantine, the church is all messed up because of the because they get kind of this alliance with Rome and all these kinds of things, and therefore, you know, they had an agenda and all this kind of stuff. This is what a lot of groups say. Okay? But in reality, the church was grappling with and trying to understand all these things during that first three centuries. So much so that we have documents, we have evidence of early Christians writing about the Spirit of God. That, there's this, that, that they're, 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 they're trying to figure out how these three work, you see? And I don't have space in this sermon to go into these in, things in detail, but I will tell you that, that the word Trinity, it's not in the Bible, by the way. Trinity's not in the Bible. But Tertullian, who's a third century figure, uh, is the first one to use it. In reference to the Trinity. But there's earlier conversations, the earlier thing goes on before then. Uh, I want to just simply take you to the Nicene Constantinople, I always mess up that word, Constantinopolitan Creed, 381 A.D. Let's take a look at what it says. This is the, the church is dealing with who is, who is the Father, who is the Son, and who is the Spirit. Look at what it says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures." And ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And, and then notice how important this is. We talked about the Father, we talked about the Son. Notice how important this is to the early church that we need to own and claim as our own. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord. And giver of life, we've talked about that. The Spirit of God gives life and gives us this new birth. The giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who, is, who, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. When's the last time you worshipped the Spirit? Right? We do it when we worship Jesus, of course. But this is dynamic going on here. Who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, 
an apostolic church. The word Catholic just means universal. This is coming out of the Greek church, by the way, for the most part. So all the churches, but, but it's anyway, Catholic, universal. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. That's, a, that's just incredible stuff there, incredible stuff. We need to own that, that, that God is three persons in one. And you might be saying to yourself, well, the pastor's telling us what I already know. But I'm going to tell you right now, there are people out there in the world that don't know this. They don't, you know, people out there don't believe this. And people out there who claim that the Bible teaches one thing, let me tell you something, the Bible teaches what I've told you this morning. Read it, read John's Gospel. Go back over to John, John 16 and take a look. That there's this person, the Holy Spirit, that comes to the church. And there's this person named Jesus, right? The Son of God. And John opens up with that gospel because John is trying to make it clear that there is this thing that we later call the Trinity. There are these three persons who have one substance. They're all God, three individuals, three persons, but one substance. Okay? Oh, boy. So many good things. Um, I want to take a look just real quickly at Romans 8 9. I said this sermon was about Romans 8 9, and it's already after, after 12 o'clock. Well, it's the way it goes sometimes. Okay, let's take a look at this just real quickly. All right, you'll, you'll have the, the Greeks on the right side, the English is on the left, of course. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And we talked about this many times that, that Romans eight is about the church being in the spirit. That the, the flesh in Romans seven is about the hostility that this person has toward God, can't do God's law, is struggling, is, is having a very difficult time. And Paul's saying, look, notice the distinction, the difference between being a Christian and being one who's not a Christian yet. You, however, are not in the flesh, you see, but in the spirit, the tremendous contrast here. And then he says, if in fact, now in the Greek, it's, it, it, you can translate it, it that way, if in fact, uh, but that a pair word uh, probably simply means sense. Sense indeed, like, like underline that. Sense, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now this is so crucial, because first of all, notice that the Spirit of God is also referred to as the Spirit of Christ. Sometimes when we read passages in Scripture, we just go over things too quickly. You read this, and you miss the fact that the Spirit of is related is, is, is related to the Father here. It's the Spirit of God. And also related to the Son, Spirit of Christ. Okay? All right? <laughs> so, so what we have here is, again, this dynamic thing going on, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, and as the, as the Western church, and I guess in some church history, but the Western church affirmed that also proceeds from the Son, and that created a lot of division. But the reality is, is that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, is one person, and there's a relationship between the three. Okay, that's so really important to see that. And, and i got to say this, uh, this, this third point about this passage. If you do not have the Spirit of Jesus Christ, same thing as the Spirit of God, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not His. Isn't that an interesting statement? Okay. Uh, we, could, we could take a seminar on the differences between the Wesleyan tradition and the Pentecostal tradition. Uh, see my class on the book of Acts someday. But the reality is, 
is that when a person receives Jesus Christ as his or her Savior, one becomes born again. How does one become born again? This mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. And you belong to Jesus. In the Greek, it just says, utas uk esten atu, which means that you're his. In that case, it would be, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not his. You don't belong to him. So, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, then you're in the flesh. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit. It doesn't even make sense to Paul. You see? And then notice this last thing I'm going to tell you about this verse. Notice the word oike in the Greek also dwells in the English, and I put it in orange. It's dynamic. It's a present, active living within us. If you have the Spirit of God, if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is actively working and living within us. It's not a static idea. This is a dynamic idea. Because the Spirit of God comes to us to give us life. And life that is exciting. Life that is changing. Life that transforms us. Life that makes us the kind of people that God has always wanted in his family. The Spirit of God dwelling, actively living, actively engaging us. That's what the Spirit of God does. These are incredible, incredible dynamic ideas and concepts that, that, um, that we need in our lives. Not just concepts, but truths that touch our personal, or really all of our being, our body, our soul, our spirit. <sighs> spirit of God. We have a whole lot to learn, don't we? But just imagine the early church trying to figure this all out. You know, what is this like? What does this all mean? And if we sit on their shoulders. We stand on their shoulders. We say thank you to God for giving us this, this, this understanding and this knowledge. Okay. Today we come to Holy Communion. You know what? The Spirit of God dwells not simply in the bread and the cup. I, I believe that. I believe that the Spirit of God is here in some mysterious way. But the Spirit of God is also here in the congregation, in this place. He lives among us. He dwells with us in an active way. Would you pray with me? Father, as we talk about the bread and the cup and we participate in the bread and the cup. I pray, Lord, that you would make these things living in the sense that they can be used by you to transform our hearts, cleansing our hearts, making us whole beings. Fill us up with the Holy Spirit as we take Holy Communion so that Jesus Christ is proclaimed throughout our lives in every aspect of our lives. So be in the bread and be in the cup and be in the people. In your name I pray, amen.